Welcome to the Career Matters Podcast. This is Nisar Ahmad, your host, and this is episode 75 of the podcast. And this particular episode is part of the continuing uh, series called the Career Expert Series. Uh, if you have followed us uh, so far, I've brought on career experts, professionals, coaches, and they have shared latest trends, uh, their expertise in terms of job search, career growth, etc. And for today's Career Expert Series episode, I'm interviewing Isaac Morehouse. Uh, Isaac is the founder of Praxis. His company helps students and new graduates transition into the workforce through an apprenticeship program. And I'm sure we'll learn more about Praxis, more about Isaac as we go along at the, at the interview. Hey, Isaac, welcome to the podcast. Hey, uh, thanks so much for having me. The first question I always ask my guests before we get into the introduction is where are they calling from? I am in Charleston, South Carolina. And could you share with us a fun fact or an interesting fact about Charleston that most people would not know unless they have lived there? Ah, okay. So something that I found out, I've been here for about six years when we first moved down that I thought was pretty interesting. Many people do know that Charleston was where the Civil War uh, in the U.S. began. But what many people don't know is prior to that, the notorious pirate Blackbeard once held the city of Charleston hostage for a week. Wow. And, and this, this was uh, this in the 1700s? Probably set, yeah, 1700s. Actually, I have a book on Blackbeard that I've been meaning to read for like months, and I still haven't read it. <laughs> so I don't know for sure, but I'm going to assume 1700s. Wow. I mean, it sounds interesting. They should, sounds like they should be making a movie about this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. So Isaac, thanks for sharing that. I, I love that question because it helps me to know a little bit about the cities that where my guests are from. The next question, obviously, I'd like to know a little bit more about yourself. If you can also introduce to us what Praxis is all about. Sure, absolutely. So, boy, a little about myself. I mean, I guess uh, I grew up in Michigan, uh, West West Michigan, about halfway between Detroit and Chicago. And didn't ever really have like a specific, you know, goal of what I wanted to do with my career. I always had a, you know, work ethic and like to, to work and earn money, but kind of just as long as I was doing something that, that I didn't hate, I figured every, it was okay and just kind of, you know, followed what was interesting to me and spent about a decade working in some nonprofits kind of in and around the world of higher education, doing a lot of work with college students, high school students. And over that period, just kind of kept having this idea of there's got to be a better way to help young people transition from being students where they're sort of passive respondents and rule followers, you know, sort of consumers of information to transition into a career where they have to take responsibility, be in the driver's seat, be producers. Um, And that's a really hard transition. And increasingly, school and university are really not serving those students well in terms of making that transition possible. And this, this is something that I was seeing um, with a lot of business owners that I was interacting with. They were just always hungry for talent, but having a hard time finding anyone. And then all these students are like, I'm hungry for jobs, but there, nobody's hiring. And uh, I thought, man, something's amiss. So I launched Praxis about four years ago. 
And, you know, this was kind of a big risk for me. I had a great job. I had a lot of autonomy. was doing well. I've got kids. I've got four kids now in a family and quit my job and went all in to launch uh, Praxis. Got a really small start and been growing ever since. Uh, in many ways, we're still small compared to the vision I have for where I want to take this thing. But we've got a, a team of uh, 10, 10 employees now. We're all remote. We work remotely uh, across the US. Um, and we have you know a dozen or more contractors that we work with as well, You know, uh, advisors and things. And almost 200 people now have either gone through the program or are currently in the program. So it started, the first, the first uh, group was only six people. Uh, so we've grown little by little uh, every, every quarter, every year. That's been a lot of fun. And, and in terms of what Praxis is, just the structure and the, the vision behind it, the, really the goal is to help young people discover and do what makes them come alive, to figure out what kind of career, what ways they can create value and earn a living, and then to find the shortest, most direct path to that so that they waste as little time and money as possible. And so it's a one-year program with a six-month professional boot camp, which is all done remotely. Participants are really building a portfolio of skills and really a way to demonstrate to the world those skills so that they don't have to rely on just, hey, I got a degree or hey, here's my resume. But rather than a static list of attributes, actual projects and experience that demonstrates what they can do, and then the second six months, they're at a paid apprenticeship at a startup doing things, to typically non-technical roles like sales, marketing, operations, to really learn on the job and use that as their chance to leverage that into a full-time offer or uh, some of them leave and go work on their own or, or become a freelancer or go to another job. But that's the basis of, of Praxis. That's exciting. I mean, a lot of t- milestones you've mentioned uh, as you were talking about Praxis. So congratulations on all the accomplishments so far. Thank you. I'm just curious. You mentioned apprenticeship. Uh, It's also on your website. What's the difference between an apprenticeship and an internship? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in, you know, there, in some instances, it depends on the quality of, of the internship. You know, it may be very similar, but what we, what we focus on and why we choose to call it an apprenticeship and frame it this way to our business partners, as well as our participants is internships typically are a one semester thing, like maybe three months over the summer or something. And it's, it's often the case that that person is coming to do this for a few months to add it to their resume, get some credits, and then they're going to go back to school. And so there's not a lot of incentive on the part of the business to really invest in them and to really give them serious work and serious training it's kind of like, well, we'll kind of have them in here. They might be able to make some copies, make some coffee, do a few things. We'll, we'll make sure it's a fun experience for them. And, you know, maybe a couple of years down the road when they graduate, you know, if they, were, if they were really impressive, you know, maybe we can try to get them to come work here or something. The apprenticeship, it's really intended to be basically a, a six-month interview for the full-time role. The intention is you're coming, you're actually doing the real work. Like if someone's looking to hire a sales development rep, you're going to come in and you're going to do the job as an apprentice. And the only difference is you're going to start at a lower pay so that it's lower risk to the business while you prove yourself. And in practice, you're going to have ongoing support. You're going to have training and advising sessions and a curriculum to help you do better during that six months so that you can, you know, basically speed up your learning curve. So someone who has, who's a little younger, a little less experienced perhaps can get access to a role that they otherwise would not be qualified for by saying, let me come on as an apprentice for six months and prove myself. 
but it's doing the real work rather than sort of, uh, oh yeah, the interns are kind of like over there in their corner doing, you know, doing whatever we can come up with. This is an actual, uh, an actual role in, in, in the company. So it's more of a pre-job before they get the job. They're learning all the skills and the advantage for the employer is the risk is low and they, they get to test out the candidate. Yeah. Who could be a future employee. Yeah, for, for our business partners, we sort of frame it. There's three main benefits to them. The, the first is the cost is lower. So we say, look, for the six months, they're going to make $15 an hour, which is, it's decent, but it's a little lower than, than the entry-level role typically would. So a little bit lower cost. We have already, um, the talent identification time is lower because we have already kind of vetted them and, and gotten you know quality people into the program. But they, they also get ongoing outside support from Praxis to help them succeed in this role. So you're getting somebody who's, who's got a, a career, you know, training program that's happening in addition to their work to help them succeed at it. And then finally, the, the expectation is you have this role for six months and you, you only get, you know, the full-time offer if you prove yourself in that six months. So it's a little bit less of a risk than, I mean, you know, you can, you can fire anybody at any time if you really want to, but less of a risk than bringing on someone with the expectation that they're going to be there indefinitely. It's kind of sets up the expectation for both parties. We're giving you this trial run. Show us what you've got. Okay. So that's, uh, you bring up an important point as you were talking about the benefits for an employer is hiring is not a fun process. It is <laughs> never easy. There's always a risk. What you provide is giving that extra level of comfort, saying that you're also helping them uh, on the side. Help, uh, you just, you're, you're doing an additional quality check. Yeah, okay. yeah, a- absolutely. Okay, so you, you actually covered the benefits for an employer. So let's, uh, let's switch uh, gears. In terms of the actual apprentice or the new grad or the student, what are the benefits for them, for example, versus doing them graduating and finding a job themselves? Sure, so there's several. I mean, the you know, there's kind of the, the real, the real mission and purpose from my perspective is to help young people think beyond jobs to prepare themselves almost for a post jobs world where this idea of I get certified in one thing and then I go get a job with that title and now I'm secure. You have to think beyond that because things where you're just sort of following rules, re- repeating known processes, those can be outsourced to, to machines and software. And thinking like an entrepreneur, even if you're working for a company, thinking that you are the one who owns your own career and you have to create value and prove to people your ability to create value. That's all that matters, those two things. So you got to have some real value you can bring to the table. And you've got to have a way to demonstrate and prove that rather than just trying to like sit back and rely on your degree or your job application to do the work for you or your company to just provide you with a, you know, stable income. You have to always be thinking like a value creator. So that mindset is really the fundamental thing. But in, so, you know, and, that, and that's really inculcated in the boot camp, especially where we're, we're, cause many of the people that come through the program do not have college degrees. They're doing this instead of college and they're getting jobs that say they require a college degree. But we know that that's not actually true. They don't care so much about the degree. They care about having some level of confidence in your ability to execute for them and to create value. And if you can build something that's more impressive than a degree, so we we call it like a digital portfolio, a body of work. If you can build something that demonstrates your skill level, that can trump 
that degree or any other kind of static thing that you're going to rely on. And so having the mindset of, I need to create value and I need to prove it. I need to find ways to actually demonstrate. So, so if a hiring manager says, you know, I'm hiring somebody for a marketing role, uh, you know, degree in marketing required. If you say whether or not I have a degree in marketing, here's what I'm going to bring to the table. Here is a, a YouTube video, YouTube channel where I've got videos walking through all of these email drip campaigns I put together and showing the conversion rates I got and showing, you know, how I retargeted people with Facebook ads, right? You could do that for six months for an Etsy store. And even if you earn no money, if you demonstrate all the things that you learn and knew how to implement, that's instantly more valuable than a piece of paper that says degree in marketing. And so the ability to kind of demonstrate what you can do, that's really something we're delivering to our participants, helping them see that the world has this possibility now. They've got all these ways to, to show their skill level. And then obviously we are providing them with this six-month apprenticeship at a startup. And the majority of participants, you know, these are roles that they would not be able to get in and of themselves. They wouldn't be able to get by themselves most likely because we have built relationships with these businesses and they trust when Praxis comes to them and says, hey, we've got somebody for this role. They know that our, our people are highly vetted, that we're training and working with them. And so they give them a chance to kind of punch above their weight, so to speak. Somebody who's young and raw, they don't have a lot of hard skills or a ton of experience yet, but they've demonstrated that hustle. They've, you know, shown how they can learn uh, themselves and they're part of the Praxis program they get opportunities that they usually could not otherwise access. And it's, it's always possible, you know, someone could, if they sort of take this mindset and, and embody it themselves, they can open up those kind of opportunities for themselves. And, and by all means, uh, if you can do it without praxis, go for it. But I see it sort of like a fitness trainer for your career. You know, it's, there, there's no real reason that fitness trainers have to exist at all. Um, because people could just go figure out what exercises to do and do them, right? But it's not, it's actually a lot harder than that. It's, it's really helpful to have someone who can help say, what are your goals? Let's help you get there. We've done this before. We've seen this before. We can help you learn how to leverage this and put you in a position to help you succeed. And then finally, just from a practical standpoint, 98% of our grads get hired full-time after the program and their average salary is over 50000 the vast majority of them don't have college degrees. And again, they're working in jobs that claim that they require college degrees. So we're sort of showing people how to hack the system, how to bypass kind of just sitting around and getting a, stacking up credentials and hoping that it you know, gets you a job when you blast out resumes and instead showing you how to take control. Again, it's not about, you know, don't go to college necessarily. Whether or not you have a degree, you've got to think beyond that. You've got to think about you being in the driver's seat and learning how to go out there proactively and impress companies and open up doors for yourself. And that's really what we're kind of helping, helping inculcate. Wow. I was taking, writing some notes as you were speaking. A couple of things that really stood out for me is becoming a value creator. That really stood out. And also the, the whole concept of Owning your career rather than just getting a job out, out of uh, out, out of out of university or college, and that's a huge mind shift, right? Because mm -hmm. most people, I think, they're conditioned to go get a job so they can make a living. You're changing the entire mindset to make them more valuable in the marketplace, so they can. They're starting off. They're not just starting off. They're starting off on a right foot. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, the kind of person who's relentless about self improvement about showing their work, sort of demonstrating their skill, we call it learning out loud, who knows how to create value and build social capital with people, build a network, they're never going to have to worry about a job, 
that, that's, that's always going to be available to them. Um, and that's really what we want to try to help say, okay, I, I understand you're thinking food and shelter, food and shelter. I just need a job. That's okay. That's the first level of, you know, thing that humans go after sort of on the hierarchy of needs. But we want to help you see beyond that, that if you think bigger, if you think on a more fundamental level, what can I do to create value for other people? What kind of problems can I solve? And how can I prove that to them? You'll never have to worry about food and shelter. I wanted to ask you this question because you mentioned about uh, relentless, about self-improvement, learning out loud. In my experience in dealing with people, I find that that's a rare quality uh, where a lot of people are set in their own ways. And I don't mean to be negative. I'm just, you know, as a realist, I've yeah. seen we've seen a handful of people who would be, who love, who are heuristic learners. They want to learn on the job. They are, they're just continuously improving themselves. Some people might argue you either have that trait or not. Is that the case? Do you think that is something that it could be taught? I think it's a combination. So especially having children myself and, and observing them and I, and I've, you know, it's funny running practice, helping, helping, you know, young people in their teens and twenties up to their late twenties with their careers. It's forced me to get better understanding of what's going on and how humans work and learn to go back further and further and further. And so I've done a lot of reading and research and, and with my own children of very young children and kind of trying to understand where this stuff comes from. And so here's kind of my take on that. I think all humans are born relentless learners, relentlessly curious, and relentlessly entrepreneurial. You can see this with children. I mean, babies, toddlers, they experiment, they explore, they want to know everything. So that's a natural part of who humans are. But unfortunately, the, the education system and sort of often the way that uh, we parent or sort of the structure of you know, various societal institutions in general one of their first orders of business is to stomp that out because it's, it's much easier to deal with, you know, 30 kids who all just sit down and shut up and do the same thing and don't push the boundaries and don't explore just from a practical standpoint. So that's what the education system kind of optimizes. And so it kind of snuffs out that spark, that, <laughs> that flame. And, and I'm not trying to be, you know, sensationalistic or say that anyone has sinister intentions. It's just the, the fact of the way that most of education is structured, the, the goal is to make everybody basically the same. You learn the same things at the same age. You know, you, you ask permission to go to the bathroom. You know, you do the things that you're told. And the more obedient you are, the more you're rewarded in that system. Not the more curious and exploratory and innovative, the more obedient. In fact, innovating is often called cheating <laughs> or breaking the rules, right? So we have a system that really suppresses that. And so I think there's, a, there's an ember there in everybody and it's to varying degrees, different personalities and, and types are able to kind of keep that exploratory, uh, you know, curious learning hunger alive better than others. But so what we try to do is, is a little of both at Praxis. So we look for people who have that spark and it's clear they're restless, they're, they're curious, they've got something there. It's not fully, you know, set ablaze. We really have to help fan it into flame and help them realize like, hey, go ahead, do this stuff out loud. Like you're telling me you, you learned, you know, Java or you're studying this. 
why can't, if I Googled you, I wouldn't find out anything about that. How do you expect to get opportunities for yourself if no one knows? Why don't you start a podcast about it? You know, like, like you're doing, right? This career podcast. Why don't you blog about this? Why don't you create something that demonstrates your ability? Why don't you build a website and use that to showcase your coding skills instead of just saying, I have coding skills? Why don't you write book reviews of every book you read? Write them on Amazon so that you can, you're showing us, you're kind of, and, it, and people kind of see it all of a sudden. They're like, oh yeah, oh, I guess I could do that. Oh, and it's like, it's addictive. Once you start turning creativity into a discipline, you start turning your curiosity into something that you're publicly sharing and you're, you're kind of building that, it, you kind of get hooked on it and you can't stop. And then you become somebody who I think is, um, you know, incredibly valuable to, to yourself and to others. So it's a little bit of both, uh, Nassar. I, th- I think humans have it naturally. I think it gets pretty squelched, but if you can keep it alive just enough, then I think you can learn how to fan it back into flame. Wow, that is amazing. I'm, I'm just telling you, I mean, that itself uh, is a topic I really love because I consider myself a learner, a continuous learner. I love learning new things, figuring new things out. And what I got from this is it could be molded. It could be something, if people are given enough reasons, they can do that as well. Like yep. uh, it's not something that they're born with. I would like to continue the theme of what we discussed because as you said at the beginning, a lot of the hard technical skills like marketing or coding can be learned. It's, it's more of industry specific, can be taught. I want to continue this theme about soft skills. We covered a couple of things. In your experience, you worked with over 200 plus uh, students. You also worked on the other side with business partners and employers. Mm-hmm. What are some of the soft skills in your experience people struggle with? Yeah, this, this has been pretty interesting to me too, because some of this, some of it is, I think, generational as well. So, you know, on the more abstract level, I think what I would call forward tilt, which is like an eagerness, an interest in what's going on. And I, and I got that from a, a, an old executive who told me that when he hired people, when they were in the interview, if they were physically leaning forward over the table, that was usually a good sign. And if they were kind of sitting back with, a, with like their body language was sort of disinterest, um, that wasn't a good sign. I really like that. That image stuck with me. The people who are, you know, so interested in what's going on that they're kind of leaning forward and just a general interest in what's going on around them. The kind of person who, when they walk into a coffee shop, they immediately start thinking, okay, so I wonder what their margins are. So if this coffee is four bucks, let's see, how many of those are there six people in here right now? I wonder how much they're paying in rent. Could they be making a profit, right? The kind of person who's just interested in like business and commerce. And, you know, they're not, they're not sort of like waiting for someone to show them the perfect job that meets their passion. They're just interested in everything and they're kind of eager. That's a huge, that kind of interest in the world. That's a huge one. I think something else that I don't know how to define other than just calling it judgment so understanding how to kind of read a situation and when to respond in what manner. So even just when people will come, let's say even as a customer, someone has a, a complaint with a product that they're using. If you want to get, you know, let's say a refund, having the judgment to understand the probability of getting that refund is higher if I start off the conversation in a polite manner and say, hey, I really love your product. However, it didn't work in this way. Is there any way you could help me out? Versus like having the judgment to understand that's going to help you get what you want better than like coming on full attack mode to start with. And it's amazing just those subtleties of, of understanding. It's kind of like an emotional intelligence, I guess I would call it, of understanding how to read a situation and reach other, read other people. So, so judgment would be a second. And then one that's more concrete, and I, I can't tell you how big this one is, knowing how to email. 
like effectively email and young people are bad at this. And this can, this encompasses a lot of things being very quick with your response time. You know, we, we tell our participants, you should respond to every email within 24 hours max, because when you're early on in your career, you don't have a lot else to go on. And there's not a lot of ways to impress people, but this is low hanging fruit. If you always respond to everything quickly, you don't let your inbox dominate your life. You keep it, you know, to inbox zero or whatever method. And so that you don't miss things, you respond quickly. That alone is going to help you stand out and responding in a professional manner, understanding like when it's okay to use emojis and when it's not (laughs) understanding, you know, even just simple things like when someone says, you know, and we we're always surprised by this. It's, it's very simple, but um, we'll, we'll connect one of our participants, for example, with a business partner and say, hey, this business partner wants to interview you to, to see if you'd be a good fit to do your apprenticeship with them. You know, here, Jack, meet Bob. And then, you know, Bob will say, hey, I'd love to, to do the interview. Here are the times that I have available, right? And then Jack, this young person, will say, great, I'm available during those times, which is like a horrible no-no compared to excellent. Let's do this time that fits in that window. Here's my phone number. I'm sending you a calendar invite with the specific time, right? Something that small to to know how to use calendar, to know how to transition an email or how to make a handoff or to know that when somebody CCs their colleague, you need to hit reply all and not, you know, like little stuff about just using email. I can't tell you if people just master how to use email effectively alone, they'll they'll be like way ahead of most people. Mm-hmm. No, that is so true. And if I can quickly say something, I think it's not only young people who are terrible at sending emails. I think it's everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is very true. It's, and I noticed, Nisar, you're great at this because as soon as we were introduced, you said, great, how about this time I'll send you a calendar invite? You did. And I even had to cancel on you last minute. And you said, no problem. And you updated the invite and sent it right away. It just, it makes it so much easier to work with people who know how to do that. Oh, thank you. I always, uh, just a very quick uh, story I don't want to take away from our interview is the response of, when people respond to your email quickly, especially if you're on the other side, let's say you're trying to buy something, it's like giving them an additional brownie points. And a quick anecdote, uh, recently uh, my company I work for, uh, we are looking for a software, we are looking at a couple of vendors. And one of the reasons we didn't, I personally steered away from one of the top vendors was the responsiveness was terrible. Mm-hmm. The person would only get back to me after two days at 11 o'clock in the night. And if I wanted something, it took a long time answer. Whereas the other salesperson got back to me instantaneously. That person and the company were hungry to win our business and they showed it. Those things could tip the scale in case of a superior product over a product that is not as not the best. So we ended up going with the product, which is number two, because of the responsiveness. And the moral of the story is this applies to your career as well. If a potential employer reaches out to you saying, are you available for an interview? If you, if you take for, uh, three days to respond, chances are that spot is already gone. Absolutely. And, it, and it's important to remember, you know, who you are as a person, your value as a whole human being or how impressive you may be uh, on the whole. That's that's not what's under consideration earlier in your career because most people don't have a chance to get to know that. So you may be really funny, really likable, really impressive in all kinds of ways. And you could say to me, look, all the amazing skills and talents I have taking two, three days to respond to email. That's such a small factor into my value. And I could say that may be true, but most people in the professional world, that's the only like basis on which they're going to interact with you. They don't know you. They don't have the chance to be around you and see all your other skills. They don't know everything about you. The first impression they get 
is that email. And if that comes slow, they're going to associate you with, I'm not sure. If that's quick, rapid, and professional, immediately they're going to have a window that they're going to want to know more about you. So even though it may not be that important in terms of, you know, your place in the universe, the fact that in today's world, especially when you're talking with people all over the world where you can't always meet in person, that may be the only way that people have to, that their, their first point of contact with you and first impressions matter. That's true. You did mention passions uh, in your last question. So this, as we are getting close to wrap up, I, d- I definitely wanted to ask that question. Today, uh, the young people, Gen Y, Gen Z are sort of propagated the whole notion of do what you love, do what, you, uh, what you're passionate about, then building a career. You, you see that a lot in the news, every forum you go to, every website you go to. What is your take on this whole passion thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, all things being equal, like everybody would rather do something they enjoy doing. But I think there's a lot of confusion around how to go about that or even what that means, right? So doing something that let's say you love or you're passionate about, it's not the same as doing something easy. You know, the things, things that are meaningful are often very hard and very challenging. So that, that's the first thing. But I think if you want to say, okay, I want to do work that I love, getting there, I think is really important. If you try to start out by saying, I'm only going to do things I like, I think you're going to have a really bad time because it's hard to know what you like and it's hard to know what you will like in 10 years. I mean, what you're going to be doing in 10 years probably doesn't exist yet, first of all. So, and you can't, you know, I run into a lot of young people who are like, well, I had this job for a month, but it wasn't speaking to my soul. So I quit and I'm going to like backpack the world. Look, until you know how to work, until you're a workaholic, you don't need to worry about work-life balance and finding yourself, right? Those are the things that you need to worry about once you're already working too hard. Because you can't, you can't figure out what you love outside of the context of work. You can't sit outside of the world of work and observe it from afar and try to pick something you're going to be passionate about. You have to get in and get experience and not only get experience, you can't half-ass it. You have to get experience going all in, working as hard as you can to figure out what things do speak to you. And so I have a, I have a reverse approach. I just say, forget about finding what you love. That's too hard. Who knows? And you could love 10 different things over your career. Don't do things that you hate and everything else is fair game. So jump in and try something. And if it absolutely sucks your soul and makes you miserable and you hate everything about it, then quit and find something that doesn't. But if you don't hate it, that's good enough. You don't need to love it. Keep trying things you don't hate. And if you, know, you start to add to, to the list of things that you know you don't like, like it took me a long time to figure out I really don't like logistics and planning. I did stuff like that for a while and I, and I did it well and I did it as hard as I could, but I kind of figured out, you know what? I've realized something. I'm less happy when I do this. So I want to do less of that. I want to do less of the things I dislike and everything else is fair game. And eventually it will kind of narrow down over the course of your career to a smaller and smaller number of things. And you'll start to realize, oh, all these things that I don't hate, they have a lot of similarities. And that will kind of, that will kind of help you hone in on your passion. It's more like chiseling away the stuff that's a bad fit than it is trying to find the one true path. Because I, I don't know that that exists. I believe that is the first time I've heard that. And could you please repeat that? Don't you... Anything that you hate, everything else is fair game. Absolutely. You know, look, look at it as, don't look at it as I got to, I got to look ahead, you know, on this, uh, you know, chart and see what's, what's the one point in the distance. That's my true meaning and calling. And I got to, I got to plot a path to that. I think that's unrealistic. Instead, 
just say, okay, when I look across the field of opportunities, which ones do I know for sure I hate and I have no interest in? Great. Eliminate those. Everything else is fair game. Jump in with both feet and try it. That, that is amazing advice. And I had to repeat that once because that's the first time I heard that and it is mind blowing. So we are coming to the end of our interview, Isaac. Before we part, any last words, any final piece of advice you'd like to give to the audience? Sure. I'll issue out a a little challenge because this was really world changing for me. This not too indirectly led to the creation of Praxis and to me, for me to, you know, get it off the ground and have the courage to to go full time and create this, this company. And that is do one thing every day for, try it for just like 30 days. One thing every single day, seven days a week that will improve you and make you better. Now, in my case, I, it doesn't even matter that much what it is. And it doesn't have to be anything major. In my case, a friend challenged me to blog every day. And he, had, and he challenged me to blog every single day for six months. Now, when you think about that, there's no guidelines. I could, I could write one word, one sentence, whatever. As long as I clicked publish every day, seven days a week for six months. And at first, it's like, well, I don't have anything to say. I don't, it's not about any of that. Oh, there's no audience. It's not about the audience. It's a selfish act for yourself to learn how to turn creativity into a discipline and to build the confidence to know I can show up and I can ship something every day. And if nothing else gets done today, if the whole day falls to pieces and it's a bad day and I get nothing else done, I know that I at least did one thing. I published one blog post and that alone makes me a little bit better than I was yesterday. And so it could be that, it could be one form of exercise, it could be, but something tangible and something doable, not not something really huge because you can't do really big things every single day. Do one thing every day. You create a challenge for yourself. I love blogging. I think that's the best one because it's a really low barrier to entry. Anyone can do it. Try it every day for 30 days. And at the end of that 30 days, if you actually stick to it and succeed, I have yet to hear somebody say, yeah, I did it and it didn't, didn't help me at all. It didn't make me a better person. Um, it's, it's a really powerful thing to be aware of your own ability to create structure and discipline even when inspiration isn't there. So I would, uh, I would go, say go ahead and try blogging every day for 30 days and see what happens. That's an amazing way to conclude the interview. A great call to the challenge. Uh, a great call to action there and, and a challenge out to the audience. Isaac, thank you very much. Uh, you've shared a lot of great ideas here. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast. And thanks for sharing your story. And also, I wish you all the best in your continued journey, continuous journey to inspiring young people and young professionals. Hey, thanks so much, Nassar. I had a great time. You're welcome. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of the Career Medis Podcast. As always, I've write a brief review of the interview with the links to Isaac's website. If you enjoyed this episode and also learned something new, feel free to post a comment or a review. And if you really loved it, definitely go ahead and share this episode among your network. Until next time, this is Nisar Ahmad, your host for the Career Medis Podcast. Thank you.